Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTB. This week's message is brought to us by Joyce Dalrymple, a member of our teaching team. She's preaching from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 21. It's a pleasure to be with you on this second Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of Peace. The title of my message is The Good News of Shalom. We live in a time of war. There's great division and polarization along racial and political lines. People are more connected online than ever, yet feel more isolated and lonely. We have um, higher rates of anxiety and depression, especially among young people. We see signs of beauty, goodness, and hope, but we also experience so much brokenness and pain and sin. We look inside ourselves and experience the same tension. There's love and goodness, but there's also things we continue to struggle with, like envy, greed, addictions, anxieties. We are longing and waiting for peace external and internal peace. Let's take a moment, close your eyes, and visualize what peace looks like. What does peace look like to you? Maybe you pictured the end of war in the Middle East and Ukraine. Maybe you pictured a newborn baby sleeping, or a place like the beach, or a person, or a memory. What I pictured was my dad's face when he finally accepted Christ. He was in the ICU on his deathbed, actually. Some friends came to share the gospel with him. Um, He had heard it before many times, but this time was different. When they asked him whether he believed, He said yes, and an overwhelming peace came over him. The crease between his eyebrows were smooth, and his face radiated light and peace. My dad was someone who always had to be in control. He lived his life to minimize risk. And maybe part of that was because as an immigrant, he had already risked so much to come to America. And the only time he was truly relaxed And that peace was when everything was going well. But in the hospital, when his body was failing and he had no control of whether he would live or die, he finally made peace with God. Peace with God is not an elusive peace based on your circumstance, but a true, deep, lasting peace. It's shalom. Shalom is more robust than the word for peace in English, We experience a right relationship with God, with others, with ourself, and with creation. It also means wholeness, completeness, flourishing, well-being, reconciliation. It's what we were created for and what we long for. When Jesus returns in the second advent, we will experience the fullness of shalom. And the good news is that we can experience shalom right here and now. I experienced it in the hospital room with my dad dying. You can experience it in whatever situation you're facing right now. 
and we can be agents of shalom in our world. This morning, we're going to study Isaiah 59. At the time it was written, Israel was in exile. After Cyrus conquered Babylon, the Israelites expected instant fulfillment of God's promise to deliver them from Babylonian captivity. They waited and longed for rescue. Why wasn't God saving them? Was he not powerful enough to do it? How long would they have to endure exile? We can relate to this today. We often ask the same questions of God. Are you good? Are you able? How long, O oh Lord? The three points of my sermon are the rebellious way leads to death, the repentance way leads to truth, and the redemptive way leads to shalom. First, the rebellious way leads to death, verses 1 to 8. The prophet Isaiah doesn't sugarcoat God's message. He says to the Israelites in verses 1 to 2, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. In other words, it's not God's impotence, but their iniquities that have separated them from God. What does the word iniquity mean? It's not a word we use in our everyday language. The Hebrew word for iniquity is avon. Kind of rhymes with iPhone. Can you guys say it? Avon. Yeah, that's good. So there's many words in Hebrew that generically can be translated sin, but the specific word for sin means moral failure or missing the mark. Another word is transgression, which means breaking trust. But here Isaiah uses avon in verse 2. Avon means crooked behavior. And I learned from the Bible project that avon is related to the Hebrew word ava, which means to be bent or crooked. In Lamentations 3, a road that isn't straight is ava. It's twisty or crooked. The writer of Psalm 36 says his back was ava. That means bent over in pain. In September, I broke my wrist. It was completely avad. I had slipped and fell backwards, like both my feet went into the air. I was bracing myself with my right hand. It was in a weird, crooked position. I fell, my complete, the complete weight of my body fell on it. Um, and I knew it was immediately broken because it was kind of like this and I couldn't straighten it. I went to the ER, they tried to realign it, um, but it was broken pretty badly. So I had surgery and a, have now a plate and seven screws in my wrist. Not only was I in pain, but my right hand was useless. I couldn't drive or cook, brush my teeth or hair. I couldn't function or do daily activities on my own. The iniquities of the Israelites made their ways crooked. They could no longer function in ways that sustained life and goodness and justice. In verses 3 to 7, their lips speak lies, empty and wicked things. Their hands were stained with blood from violent acts. They conceived trouble and give birth to evil and death. 
In her new book, Demystifying Evil, Dr. Ingrid Farrow says that evil is the corruption of goodness. Further, it is fundamentally the corruption of creational and relational goodness. Evil consists of thoughts, actions, and forces that diminish life. Evil takes what is good and twists and defiles it. When God created the world and humankind, he said it was good, very good. Adam and Eve also experienced peace with God and with one another. They lived in relational goodness and in the fullness of shalom. But the servant, serpent twisted the truth of what God said. And when Adam and Eve chose to sin, they hid and felt shame for the first time. They blamed others for their sin. And they experienced distance in their relationship with God. Shalom was broken. Verse 8 says, the way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. There is a common chant at protest. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. There's truth in this statement. If we use our power to take advantage of others, if we act in, in unjust ways, we're not going to experience shalom. We won't experience it personally or in our society. I know you may read these verses and say, well, that's not me. I'm not a violent person or I'm not oppressing the vulnerable. But if there's any unconfessed crookedness in our hearts, we won't experience the peace of God. So I want to spend the next minute in silence again to ask the Lord to show us if there is any crooked way in us. Ask him to reveal it to you. Ask him to shine a light in any dark place in our heart. The repentant way leads to truth. Verses 9 to 15a. Repentance means admitting the truth that we are lost. Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not reach us. Verses 9 to 11 expresses a longing for finding our way. We're looking for the light, but stumbling in the dark. We're like people with no eyes. Have you ever been driving and gotten lost? Now we all have Google Maps or Waze, um, so it doesn't happen as much these days. But back when I was growing up, we had paper maps um, where we'd have to call someone on the phone and ask how to get to their place. And if you got lost, you'd have to stop and find someone to ask for directions. One time, we were on a family vacation in Toronto and we couldn't find our hotel. My dad kept insisting that he knew where we were. In the meantime, my mom got more and more frustrated and they started fighting. Um, finally, I think by the time my dad admitted that we were lost and asked for directions, we were so, so far from our hotel that I don't remember if we ever made it. I actually don't remember much about that vacation except how we kept getting lost on the streets of Toronto, how my parents kept fighting and how stressful the whole vacation was. Sin is like that. 
It's like making a wrong turn and then over time getting farther and farther away from our destination. It harms our relationships. It prevents us from living out God's purposes in our lives. Um, and it steals our peace. Repenting is like physically pulling over, stopping your car, and asking God and others for help. It's so hard because it takes humility to admit that you are lost. Sometimes you have to get to the point where you realize there's no way you can find your way on your own. It wasn't until my dad got brain cancer that he realized he could not save himself. He lost his ability to see because the tumor was in the center of his brain, putting pressure on his optic nerves. Um, he had to rely on my mom to take care of him. And up to that point, he didn't have to rely on anyone. Dad had come to America in his 20s with very little. He was smart and worked hard and rose up the ranks in his company to become the vice president. But in his success, he didn't feel like he needed God. At the end of our lives, what is going to matter? Our health will fail. We can't take our wealth with us. Thankfully, my dad finally realized that he couldn't save himself and accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Repentance requires ownership, that I did this. It's easier to blame others. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. She started it. Or blame God for our circumstances. I had bad parents. I had a hard childhood. I didn't have the same opportunities. Those things may be true, but at some point, we need to take responsibility for our own choices. We need a change of perspective. And interestingly, there's a shift from the third person in verses 1 to 8 to the first person in verses 9 to 15. It's no longer your iniquities or their evil deeds, but it's our offenses and our sins. Verses 12 to 13 says, For our offenses are many in, our, in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, our alone, our rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on God, inciting lies our hearts have conceived. The other thing I want to point out from these verses is that sin, any and every sin, is always an affront against God. When we sin, we turn our backs on God and go our own way apart from him. We may minimize our sins. What we did wasn't that bad. But it is a big deal when we realize that sin is rebellion against the holy God who loves us. Sin is rebellion against the holy God who loves us. Then we can express sorrow to God for what we have done and turn back to him again. As Protestants, we don't stress the practice of confession and we often think confession is just something private that we do between God and ourself. But scripture tells us that our healing actually requires that we confess our sins to other people. James 6.15 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This doesn't mean that we necessarily need to broadcast our sins publicly or post it on social media, but we do need fellow Christians to help us in our healing journey. 
So for the last two to three months, I had to go to occupational therapy for my wrist. My therapist would massage my wrist and stretch it. Um, and it was painful when she touched my scars and stretched my wrist. Um, she gave me exercises to do at home, but it wasn't enough. I had to go see her in person. And confession is like this. We need to do it with God, but we also need trusted people to confess to in person. People who can pray for us, support us, and help us along the way. It can feel uncomfortable at the time, but confession and Christian community and accountability are absolutely necessary for our growth and healing. We also experience the grace of God through people and his restoration of us in community. I invite you all to recite the words of this corporate confession out loud. It's going to be posted up here. I don't know if you can see it. I'm actually going to try to move out of the way a little bit. So can you guys see that some, some, a little bit? So stand up. I invite you to stand. We're going to say this out loud. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone and by what we have, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of thy son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. You may be seated. First, the rebellious way leads to death. Second, the repentant way leads to truth. And finally, the redemptive way leads to shalom, verses 15b through 21. In verses 15b and 16, God looks around and finds no one to intercede. There is not one righteous person. This is an echo of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah when God revealed to Abraham that he could not find any righteous man remaining in the city. The people and place were totally corrupt. God ends up rescuing Lot and his family and then destroying the whole city. Israel deserved the same fate, but God does not destroy them. Instead, he himself comes and rescues them. His own arm achieved salvation. What undeserved love and mercy when the one from whom we deserve punishment and expect punishment pours out grace upon grace on us instead. This is the kind of love that our Father God has for you and me. But for those who continue to, to defy him, there is judgment. The imagery used in verses 17 to 19 is one of war. God is a warrior who carries out justice against his enemies. He puts on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and the garments of vengeance. Those who oppose him will experience his wrath and justice. Our God is also a holy God who is to be feared. Verse 19 says, God's acts of judgments will cause men all over the world to revere him. 
The climax of the passage comes in verse 20, where the voice of God appears. It's in quotes. So the Lord is declaring this good news. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. This is not just the deliverance from captivity that the Israelites were longing for, but it's better. This is the Redeemer, the Word made flesh, the Messiah, God's own Son, who will accomplish salvation. Isaiah 53, 11 says, the servant, that is Jesus, will bear our iniquities. He carried all our avon. The most common Hebrew phrase for God's forgiveness is carrying avon. The person who committed the wrongdoing should carry his own avon and suffer the consequences for his own actions. But Jesus absorbed all of humanity's crookedness, letting it overwhelm and destroy him. He bore it all on the cross. That's why when we repent, we are no longer separated from God. Jesus gave us peace with God. That's why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. As opposed to the crooked way that leads to death, Jesus himself is the redemptive way that leads to life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was declaring himself the great I am, the only path to abundant and everlasting life, the very embodiment of truth and righteousness, and the source of both physical and spiritual life. And this is not all the good news. God also gave us his son to re not only gave us his son to redeem us, often we just stop there, but God also gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk in redemptive ways. It's not only that we are saved and can experience alone with God, but we are also saved with a purpose to be agents of shalom in our fallen world. We bring shalom wherever we go, into our homes, into our relationships, work in community. Isaiah 59, 21 begins, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you. When the Israelites heard the word covenant, they would have remembered all the covenants God made with them through from Noah, Abraham, Moses to David. And you just finished studying the series on the 10 commandments God gave them the commandments so they would learn how to be holy and have a right relationship with him and with others. But generation after generation, Israel ignored the terms of their covenant with Yahweh and broke the commands. Generation after generation, God sent prophet after prophet to warn them, but they would not listen. Yet here, God reveals his plan to give them a new covenant that does not specify any terms they had to keep because Jesus fulfills them all. That's why the Lord says, as for me, this is my covenant with them. And there is no as for you. The prophet Jeremiah also spoke of this new covenant in Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put in my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. He will do that through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the prophet Ezekiel also describes the Holy Spirit in similar terms. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you to, and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah are all saying the same thing. And it's revolutionary. Before the law was external, written on tablets of stone, now it will be internal, written on our hearts of flesh. Before, the Israelites couldn't keep the covenant, but now in the new covenant, God gives us his spirit to live and move and transform us from the inside. Listen, all the grandeur, power, and authority of God the Father is in the person of the Holy Spirit. When you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. And that means all the grander power and authority of God now lives inside you. Returning to verse 21, the Holy Spirit who is on you will not depart from you. She will never leave or forsake you. I intentionally use the pronoun she for the Holy Spirit because spirit, ruach, in Hebrew is feminine. It's also feminine and Aramaic, which is the language Jesus spoke. Going back to the driving metaphor I used earlier, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into your car. She's here to stay. However, you can still choose to go your own way and not drive under the influence of the Spirit. But as you turn over the steering wheel of your life to her, the Holy Spirit will lead, guide, and direct you more and more. You will experience the gifts of the Spirit to know, discern, and speak with wisdom and power. People will start seeing a change in you as you produce the fruits of the Spirit in your life, such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You will demonstrate these beyond your natural capacity. So when your patience runs out, you will still be able to be patient with that person. When you face hardship, you will still have joy and peace of the Lord in your heart. And that person who used to annoy you so much, you will start to see through God's eyes of love. You will live out the purposes of God in your life. That's the Holy Spirit working in you so that you will experience internal shalom and be an agent of shalom in the world. Verse 21 goes on to say, and my words that I've put in your mouth will always be on your lips. What a contrast to the first part of the chapter where their lips uttered empty arguments, lies, and evil things. Now with the Holy Spirit in you, 
God's very words will come out of your lips. Your words will be full of life, truth, encouragement, comfort, hope, praise, and thanksgiving. Now, led and empowered by the Holy Spirit, you are participating in God's redemptive work in the world. You are making crooked paths straight. You are bringing shalom to all the places where you work, live, and play. God's words will also be on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forevermore. This covenant of blessing will last from generation to generation until Jesus returns in the second covenant. My youngest daughter, Hannah, is so excited about Christmas. She made a chain out of colored construction paper and she takes a loop off each day and then she'll announce in a loud voice to all of us how many days left until Christmas. While we don't know the exact day or time Jesus will return, we do know with the same certainty and have the same eager anticipation as Hannah has for Christmas, that he will come again. He will come in victory, and he will come to restore the fullness of shalom on earth. As we proceed through the Advent season, many churches and families will light another candle each Sunday until Christmas. We're joyfully announcing Christ is coming. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now let's walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received until he comes again. Shalom. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.